Good morning, everyone. Uh, very blessed to be up here. If you haven't met me yet, once again, I'm AJ. I know I've been up here several times now, so some of you are probably getting a little for, for, more familiar with my face. Um, but if you don't know me, I'm a member here, uh, and also I'm, I'm not from California. Uh, I'll make that evident in some of my illustrations, and in this next one you'll probably definitely see that. But most people in California, their first occupation is something like uh, either they, they start a lawn service in their neighborhood or maybe they move into a grocery store and bag groceries. However, I'm from southern Louisiana. My very first job that I can remember where I actually made a, a legitimate income, uh, I trapped raccoons and I sold them, right? <laughs> So it's kind of shocking. People are like, I didn't even know people still did that, right? It's from Tom Sawyer or something. But I did. I used to trap <laughs> raccoons, and I sold them, right? We would sell their pelts. We would sell the meat away. We would, they had a, what we called a hide man. We, we literally had a hide man. So the hide is a skin, and he would pull a trailer into town, and you would go sell your pelts to this man when I was a child. And I was reminded as I was preparing this sermon, the reason that came up, because when we would try to trap raccoons, well, there's, there's an art to this. It's very difficult sometimes. Uh, but I had a live trap, and you're always trying to settle on the, the perfect bait to trap a raccoon. My uncle's favorite was mustard sardines. So I tried mustard sardines. They worked really well. The problem is they cost 2 bucks a can. Uh, when you're 10 years old, $2 is a lot of money. <laughs> you can't come up with $2. So then I moved on. I tried started using uh, table scraps to catch them. And while raccoons love table scraps, so do your household pets. Uh, and I caught several of those in my traps, live traps. They didn't die. Um, <laughs> I caught several of those before I realized, okay, I can't do this anymore. And eventually I settled on peanut butter bread. Uh, the stench wasn't that strong, so it didn't attract anything outside of the woods or the forest. And uh, it did very well at catching raccoons. But the goal was to find some sort of bait that only brought what I desired to bring uh, and not bring anything I didn't desire to come. Uh, and I bring that up because in our passage today, we're going to look at Christian bait. You see it in your title there. And what we're looking for is the bait that attracts true followers of Jesus Christ and nothing more, nothing less, right? Christian bait. Uh, and it's very simple. We don't have to go through all the tests that I went through when trying to trap raccoons. God makes us very plain in his scripture what it is that draws true followers of Jesus Christ. Now, to do that, we'll be looking at the gospel according to John. Uh, and before we get to our passage we'll be in today, I'm going to give you a quick overview of John. For one, if you've heard me preach before, you know I, I love to give overviews. I just like to, to get an understanding of what the text is. I love biblical theology. Um, and when Jeremy asked me to preach, he forgot to give me a time limit. So i got plenty of time, right? <laughs> nah, just kidding. But when we look to the John's Gospel, one thing we will notice, there are four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in John's Gospel account, it's a little different. The other three are known as synoptic Gospels. John's Gospel was written much later, several decades after the other three. Uh, John most probably already knew about the other three. He probably already read them. And when he presents his Gospel, it doesn't take long of reading it to see it. It, it comes with a different sort of flavor. It's the same Jesus he's talking about. There's no conflicts with the other uh, Gospels in this Gospel account. But you have much more of a top-down view. His gospel doesn't open with a genealogy. He more presents things very bluntly, and he talks about a lot of theological uh, uh, concepts or doctrines. He talks about the Holy Spirit, the deity of Christ. And instead of kind of figuring things out as the gospel unfolds, you more get it kind of presented to you point blank. And to do this, it makes perfect sense when you read it, when you read his purpose statement in the end, which is John 20, verses 30 to 31. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it out loud. 
In the end of his gospel, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this gospel to evangelize the lost. He wrote it to, to present the signs of the miraculous works that Christ was performing in order that people would believe in Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah, he was who he claimed to be, and they would come to inherit eternal life. Now, the signs, like I said, are miraculous works. They're supernatural works that only a divine individual would be able to do. The belief, he wrote them so that they would believe. And when we had let John himself define what belief in is in this gospel, we see it's a little different than the belief many think of today. Many think of belief as this uh, intellectual assent to the truth. I acknowledge something's real, but James 2.19 tells us even the demons believe that Jesus is real or that they know who God is. They, they believe in shudder. And in Mark 5, 7, we have demons who call Jesus Christ himself son of the most high God. So it's not this merely just acknowledging who he is. But John defines believing as, and I'll rattle off a lot of verses. You can write them down later and check them. But uh, he defines belief as receiving him. John 1, 12, obeying him. John 3, 36, honoring him. 5, 23, abiding in him. And 8, 31, and loving him. And 8, 42, uh, it doesn't mean you do all of these things in order to believe, but it means belief is an all-encompassing, full embracing of Jesus Christ and his message and full surrender to him as Lord and Savior. So John wrote his gospel to prevent the supernatural works that Christ was doing to prove he was the Christ so that people would believe, completely surrender to him as their Lord and Savior and come to have eternal life. And that's exactly what we find as we read through the gospel. As we go through the gospel account, the very first verse of the gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John opens up the gospel by saying Jesus Christ himself is God. It says, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 19 to 34, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize, which is God saying, I sent John the Baptist to baptize with water, said, He on whom you've seen the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John opens up this gospel account by saying, Here he is, there's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of men. Then he starts presenting the signs. He says, Here are the signs that prove he is who he says he is. Chapter 2, we have water turning into wine. Two chapters later, healing of a, a official son, a supernatural healing of an ill child. Later, he heals a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. In chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Then he walks on water. He heals a man born blind. And finally, in chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Here are the signs John is presenting. That he said he was going to do. Here are the signs that prove Jesus Christ is who he said he is. And we see people coming to salvation. We see people believing. In chapter 2, verse 11, the disciples believe in him. In chapter 4, verse 39, the Samaritans believe in him. Uh, and in 8.30, it says many believed in him. But what else we notice, something else we notice in John's gospel account is that not everyone believed in him. John is presenting, he says, here is the Messiah. Here are all the signs that tell you, that prove that he is the Messiah so that you can believe he is the Messiah. But then many of these people are refusing to believe. If you look with me to chapter 5, verse 18, um, real quickly, I'll, I'll read it for us out loud. This is right after Christ's third miracle when he heals the lame man. And it says in 518, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
So through John's gospel, we start to see this tension develop between these people who are believing and these others who are not. These are the Jews who have long, they're, they're long awaited Messiah. They've been waiting millennia for the Messiah to come and redeem them. And now that he is here, they turn and they want to kill him. They want to put him to death and call him a blasphemer, say that he's blaspheming God. And what I want us to do this morning as we look in chapter 10 is we're going to look at why these individuals behave this way, why there is a tension, why some believe and accept Jesus Christ and the message that he uh, comes with or the message of salvation and why others reject him and want nothing to do with him. And to do that, we'll be looking at chapter 10, verses 19 to 30. Chapter 10, verses 19 to 30. In our outline, we're going to have three points. I'm going to break down chapter 10, and number one is the refusal and request. Point number two will be the response, and point number three will be the reassurance. If you didn't get those, I'll I'll repeat them as we go through them. But firstly, we see the refusal and the request. As I've already said in our recap, these miracles are being done. Uh, They're showing that Christ is the Messiah, and in chapter 10, verses 1 to 18... Jesus uses the illustration of a good shepherd, and we'll get a little into that a little more later in the sermon, but basically he makes very clear, very clear that he is the one true way to salvation. There is no other way outside of him. Those who want to have eternal life, those who want to be with the Father, must come through him. And verse 19 to 21, we see that there again, there was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So Jesus Christ has presented these miracles. And then here again, he says, I'm the one way to true salvation, to eternal life. And you see the Jews sitting there in this little wee squabble like, I think think he's crazy. I think he must be possessed by the devil. And someone else saying, well, I I don't know. I don't think he's crazy because how can a crazy person do this? But what's clear is they're not embracing him as their Messiah. They're still rejecting him. So these Jews are saying, well, I, I don't know if he is who he claims to be. And this transitions into verse 22. Now, in many of your Bibles, you'll see a break there in the sections. You might even see a new heading because there probably was a a several-month gap between verse 21 and 22. But John, in presenting this, is still presenting this this entire chapter or this account as one thought. So we're meant to read this from 19 to 20 to 21 to 22. It leaves off with the Jews and their uh, argument over whether or not he is the Messiah. And the next very next verse, it says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ? Tell us plainly. So the Jews are squabbling over whether or not this is Jesus Christ. They go and they encircle him at the Feast of Dedication, and they say, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. Now, a few things to understand. It's very important we don't read through this too fast, and we just look at this is happening at the Feast of Dedication. Who here has heard of the Feast of Dedication? Probably not many of you, right? Who's heard of Hanukkah? Right? Everybody, right? Everybody's heard of Hanukkah. They're the same thing. Many of us have no idea what Hanukkah is. Right? We just know it's something that the Jews do at Christmas time. It's like a Jewish Christmas. Right? That's kind of how it's presented in, in the uh, mainstream. Mainstream media presents it. But the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, was a time of remembrance when the Jews had rededicated the temple to God. And the legend says that they had a small amount of lamp oil and they were able to keep the lamp of God or the lamp in the tabernacle burning for uh, a miraculous amount of time based on how much oil they had. And we don't know if that's actually true. But what's important to understand is what led up to 
this miracle or supposed legend of the lamp oil. The Jews had been long awaiting a Messiah to come and redeem them. And about 200, 300 years after God had stopped speaking, the end of the Old Testament, the end of Malachi, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes started oppressing the Jews. Right? He started persecuting them. And if you talk to anyone who is truly Jewish, they will talk about two people that they hate more than anything. They'll talk about Adolf Hitler and they'll talk about Antiochus Epiphanes because these are the two worst people in Jewish history who brought the most pain and suffering upon the Jewish people. And when Antiochus Epiphanes was doing this, a man named Joseph Maccabees rose up, him and his posse gathered together. They were, they, they, they were not trained warriors, they were not trained soldiers, but they basically started fighting against this Syrian oppression, and they were able to hold them off for a really amazing amount of time. They fought for a long time before they got put down, and at this time, all the Jews started thinking, hey, this could be our guy. This could be him. We've been waiting on the Messiah for thousands of years, and finally this guy has come. He is pushing out this oppression. This must be our Messiah. He's going to set up his kingdom here and now, and we're going to reign with God. He's going to, God's going to fulfill his promises through this man, Joseph Maccabees. And long story short, Joseph Maccabees failed him. Right? He failed him. He eventually died. He was eventually, uh, uh, the, the revolt was suppressed. And here the Jews find themselves underneath Roman rule, underneath foreign rule once again. And it's at this feast, this time of remembrance, when they would remember what happened, but also look forward to the promise that God was going to bring a Messiah, that they would get all excited and they would celebrate. And they're approaching Jesus at the time of the Feast of Dedication. They're coming to him, they have a messianic fever, and he's performing these miracles, and they're saying, hey, could this be him? Could this finally be the Messiah that we have long awaited for? And they encircle him and say, hey, tell us plainly, but what is happening here is not that Jesus Christ is refusing to tell them plainly. It's not that they don't understand what Jesus Christ is saying. It's not that Jesus Christ has not presented himself as the Messiah. It's not that he hasn't performed the works or the miracles that prove he is the Messiah. It's that he's not the Messiah that they want. The Jews want a Redeemer, but they want the Redeemer that fits their, their story. Right? The Jews had a big problem. Their problem was that they saw themselves as victims they saw themselves as righteous in the eyes of God. That's why God chose them, because they were special. And Scripture tells us something very different. God did not choose them because they were special. God chose them because they were the weakest of the nations to glorify himself. But yet they saw themselves as something great. They saw themselves as righteous, and they saw themselves as victims of their circumstances. And they wanted a Messiah who was going to come, raise up an army, fight out this oppression, and give them the things that they felt they were entitled to. This is why they are gathering around him and encircling him and pressing him to tell us plainly, if you are the Messiah, what they're really telling him is, tell us you're the Messiah that we want. And Jesus Christ is refusing to do that. Now, a lot of things have changed since this time. A lot of things have changed in the two millennia since Jesus was on the scene. Technology's changed, right? A lot of things in the world have changed, but the hearts of people have not changed. The hearts of the people in the world have not changed. People today continue to reject the message of salvation, not because it's not evident, not because it's not clearly understood. The gospel is very plain. There's no uh, um, puzzles to solve. There's no riddles in it, but they reject it because people, everyone wants a savior, but everybody wants a savior who gives them what they feel they are entitled to. I don't know how many of you have experienced this, and uh, I feel that many of you, if you've been a Christian for a while, will experience this uh, in the workplace 
I have people all the time. I've had people several times over and over. And most likely, and most of the time, it's the people who pick on me the most for being a Christian. But when their life starts falling apart, when their life's in shambles, when they need marital advice, they'll finally come to you and say, hey, tell me about your God. Tell me, what, what does God say about this? What does God say about that? And when I open up the pages of Scripture and I try to address it, all of a sudden this tension develops. And I praise God for these opportunities. They don't always end in vain. I have seen people come to salvation, but for the vast majority of them, they want to know. They come and they press me for this information. But when I open up the Scriptures and they're confronted with what God says, they begin to back down. They begin to run away. And they say, no, I can't deal with that. I don't want that God. I need you to tell me something that's going to help me get what I want out of this life. When I did a prison ministry, I, I, I praise God for the opportunity to minister to individuals there. But uh, oftentimes, a, a big portion of the people I engaged were openly lived. They lived openly as homosexuals. And I engaged them with the gospel. And it wasn't that they were turned off at the idea of a savior, the idea of a messiah, the idea of a redeemer. But the minute they realized that this redeemer was going to deny them the very things they felt entitled to, this God, this messiah, this message you preach tells me I don't get my kingdom and I don't get the things that I want. They were repulsed by it. They were turned away by it. They grew angry at me. They resented the message that I brought. The entire, all the protests we see on TV. We have the liberal and the conservative camp. You have the liberal camp getting irate because they, 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 could, they couldn't fathom following the gospel. They're angry. They want a leader. They want to raise up. They, they want their candidate to win so that this candidate is going to be their Messiah and give them the kingdom they feel entitled to. And then on the conservative side, we see the same thing. I hesitate to use the word conservative, but they're afraid that the liberals are going to take away the kingdom they feel entitled to. And then there's this warring faction because people all want a savior a Savior who will promise them the things they desire, a Savior who gives them their kingdom. But that is not the message Jesus Christ preaches. That's not the Savior he came to be. He was a Redeemer who came to redeem people from their sins. He was a Redeemer who came to confront people as criminals, not victims, sinners against a holy God who had an eternal debt to pay and to redeem them from that. And it cost them the world. They had to give up the world to follow Jesus Christ. The application for us as believers as we look at this is to really question and ask ourselves, are we fully embracing our Savior on his terms? If we were truly Christians, we have repented of our sins, we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, uh, we're not above falling into thinking this way. Right? Oftentimes when I struggle with my personal uh, walk with God, when I'm struggling to get into the scriptures, when I fall into self-pity a lot of times and uh, um, I feel down, it's often because I feel that I'm entitled to something. I feel if God loved me, if he was the Messiah I wanted him to be, he would give me certain things. And I'm put off by the fact that he will not fit my, my narrative. He won't give me what I want. But then I'm humble when I went back to this and as I was preparing this message to realize that, hey, that's not the Messiah that I claim to worship. He doesn't do things on my terms. He's a Messiah who came to redeem me from my sins, and he called me to give up the kingdom that I was trying to build here on earth. He called me to leave that behind, embrace him as Lord and Savior, and follow him. Are we fully embracing our Messiah on his terms? Point number two, as we move into point number two, is the response. Verses 25 to 27, the response. So hopefully by now this passage is got a little more ring of a familiarity. You can kind of see yourselves in this context or it doesn't sound so distant so far in the past, so many thousands of years ago. Hopefully it, uh, you can see it in your everyday life, these encounters with people. But the question is, now what? Now what do we do as we embrace the message of salvation if we're truly uh, embracing the gospel and we're confronted with these people who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we handle that? And to do that, we're going to look at Christ's response. How does Christ respond to these people? 
Verses 25 to 27 say, I told you, and you do not believe. So this is right after the Jews encircled him and said, hey, tell us plainly if you are the Messiah. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Christ doesn't change a single thing about the message that he's preaching. When they confront him, Christ does not change the gospel. He does not negotiate. There is no talking that is done. He tells them plainly, I have told you, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. I don't understand this idea of a flock. Well, um, well, let's read chapter 10, verse 1 through 5, because this this follows uh, the illustration Christ uses, which is one of a good shepherd. In verses 1 through 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out his, all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." In the Middle East, where, uh, which is this context, and even still today uh, in the Middle East, many, many of these people make their, their living, their occupation is one of shepherds, and they understand the idea of a shepherd. Shepherds, as they uh, work their flocks, they, they have a distinct call that only their flock will recognize. So in the Middle East, often you'll have one big pen. Say you have a, a pen the size of this room. Five different shepherds can put all of their sheep inside of this pen, and when one guy wants to call his sheep, he'll go right over to one side of the pen, and he'll, he'll let out a distinct call, and all of a sudden his sheep will come out of the flock and approach this man. Christ, what he just got through telling them is that I have spoke plainly. I've already told you who I am. Those who are chosen, those whom I came to redeem, those who belong to me, know my voice, and they come to me. And he looks at these Jews and he says, you didn't come to me because you're not mine. He confronts them and says, you do not come to me because you are not my sheep. We need to understand that these are the Jews. These are the people of God. These are the sons of Abraham. They felt that they were entitled based on their ethnicity, based on their, uh, the blood that ran through their veins. They, had a, a, they were entitled to the Messiah based on their own merit. And Christ says, no, I preached a message of repentance, and those that I came to redeem hear my voice, and they come. He says, it doesn't matter if you're a son of Abraham. It doesn't matter what culture you came from. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you said you are. I'm the one way to salvation. The message I've preached is very plain. You either embrace my message of salvation or you're not mine. If we're saved, if we belong to God, right? If we are Christians that we claim to be, it's because at some point in our life we heard the voice of God. We either heard it from a pulpit We heard someone else share the gospel with us. We picked up the Bible and we read the words of scripture, but we heard the voice of God and we could not stop coming. And this is because God had chosen us before the foundations of the world. He had set his love upon us. And when we heard that voice, we could not stop coming. I I remember my salvation. I remember when I was saved, there were plenty of things that I didn't like to hear. There were plenty of things that rubbed up against my own uh, ideologies that uh, were hard for me to stomach at times when I heard them preach. But I I was drawn to the teaching and preaching of God's word. I wasn't drawn to the refreshments in the church. I wasn't drawn to anything else. I was drawn to the teaching and preaching of God's word. Because I knew the voice of my shepherd. 
And we must remember that because this is where so many in today's context go astray. It's where they drift off of Orthodox Christianity because they have placed the love of the lost, the quote-unquote love of the lost above the glory of God, above the truth of God. In our context today, we see tons of churches uh, that sell the gospel short. Instead of faithfully preaching the word, knowing that Christ's sheep will come to the sound of his voice, they feel that they need to change up the message in order to gather his sheep for him. You know, the illustration I like to use is one of uh, uh, a room full of cancer patients. All right, let's say all of you in here are just dying. You're all dying of some illness. You uh, have some, something eaten away at you, and someone gives me this uh, cup or this bowl, and I have this antidote, right? I have this cure, and it will cure everybody in the room, but as I bring it out, no one wants to drink out of it. Right? People are, are repulsed by it because they say, hey, I don't want it. It's kind of nasty. So what do I do? I go and take a bunch of sugar and stir in it, and I dilute it down until it's no longer effective, and it's not the message that will save you. It's not the potion or the antidote that will save you. And then I go around, I get the whole room to drink, and everybody's coming in, and they're so happy because they're drinking out of this, this bowl, and that means they're cured. And I turn, and I say, hey, isn't this great? I've just redeemed the entire room. Everyone's saved. And we look at that and say, that's nuts. You didn't redeem them. You, you tricked them. You convinced them that they were saved when they weren't saved. You sold them something short, and now they're all still dying of cancer. The only difference is they think they're okay. And we see this in many of the churches around us. We see this in uh, our context all over the place. Is people have softened the gospel because it turns off the world, and all they've done is started attracting people who are not God's sheep. And they started selling them a gospel that does not save. Now, we're very blessed here at First Baptist Hacienda. I can say um, I don't think we struggle a lot with... Uh, wanting to bring in fog machines or whatever else it is that's going to attract people to our building. I don't think we, we, we want to build it up with entertainment, but where I would challenge our congregation more is to think, hey, how does this look or how does this come to play in your personal walk with God and sharing the gospel with those people that you love? If we truly understand what God is doing and calling his sheep to him, then we know that we have the gospel Christ has given us the gospel, and if we want to see people come to salvation, we will do nothing more than faithfully proclaim the gospel to the people he places in our life and know that God is sovereign over drawing his sheep to himself. This can be a hard one. This can be a challenge. Right? It's not so easy not to want to soften the gospel. The hardest thing I ever did in my life, the hardest thing still, after all the things you know, I've been through, I've fought in wars, I've done all kinds of stuff, the hardest thing I ever did in my life was walk away from my family when I believed in Jesus Christ. It was the hardest thing I ever did because every bone in my body told me that if I love them, I have to stay here. But to stay here, I have to soften the gospel. I have to back off of what I preach. And I love these people so much, I want them to come to know Jesus Christ and they're rejecting the message that I'm preaching to them. They don't like it. They don't want it. So everything in me just said, hey, just soften up this message. Back off of your, your gospel-centered living. Back off of your, you know, your holy roller kick. That's what they used to call it. Stop being such a Jesus freak. right? Quit offending everybody. Soften up the gospel message. And maybe then you can kind of coax them into becoming believers in Jesus Christ. And I thank God that I was surrounded with people and I was plugged into a church with people who loved God more than they, they loved me. They loved God more than they loved my family. They loved God more than anything, and it caused them to be faithful to the message that God preached. It caused them to bring me in to be faithful to the message that God preached. And I'll praise God. When I, when I turned away, I started seeking God with everything I had. I stayed too faithful to the message he had preached. God saved my sister. God saved my mother. And God saved my brother-in-law. 
And while I still have family who is perishing and I pray for them, I know that staying there and, and serving up some kind of diluted gospel would have done nothing. But only once I accepted the gospel and only once I, when I remain faithful to the gospel, God decides who comes. But when he decides who comes, they're truly saved. And when they saw the gospel, God regenerated their hearts. When they saw the true gospel displayed, when they heard the gospel preached, they cling to the gospel. And now I know they're here to stay. I don't have to do anything to keep them here. All those churches that build their uh, um, foundation upon all these worldly things, they've brought all these people in through their gimmicks and tricks. They have to keep that stuff there to keep their congregations there. But when we preach a faithful message, a faithful gospel, those who come are truly God's sheep. And the only thing we have to do to keep them is keep faithfully preaching his word. We stay faithful to his message, and if a thousand people come, we praise God. If a hundred people come, praise God. If ten people come, praise God. And if you are faithful to the gospel message, if you preach the gospel faithfully and live a gospel-centered life and not a single person in your life ever comes, praise God. He's still glorified. Jeremiah, we read the book of Jeremiah. I don't have time to, to go there, but you will see a man who was called by God to preach the gospel. He had to give up everything that he, he owned, everything that he had. His family rejected him, and not a single person in his entire life came to believe, but he stayed faithful to the message of salvation that he was given to preach. And God used him for his glory. He's used him in so many ways and so many different people through the centuries' lives um, because he was faithful to his gospel message. He didn't bend so that he could get a certain reaction. He faithfully preached the gospel message. If we are Christians, if we truly embrace the gospel, the gospel message that Jesus Christ brought, then we will turn around and we will preach that very same gospel. We will know that God is calling sheep to himself and that we are here to identify them by faithfully preaching the gospel. I don't mean this to mean that um, you want to add this in as a caveat, I guess. This doesn't mean we just throw the gospel out and we show no love to people. Part of a gospel-centered life is loving people, is praying for them, is caring for them. It may that be monetarily or whatever means God has given us. We, we can pursue unbelievers and their salvation, but the key is that we just don't change the message. They must acknowledge their sins. They must realize that they are sinful for before a holy God, and they must repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And they can only do that if we give them the true gospel. Lastly, we see the reassurance, the reassurance in verses 28 to 30. Christ closes out his passage after he says that uh, his sheep know him and they come to him. Verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So he's still speaking to these same Jews who have confronted him, who said, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. And he tells them, hey, my sheep know my voice. They come to the sound of my voice. And then he turns around and says, I will give them eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's already said that I'm the one way to salvation. These people are claiming to be of God the Father. They're claiming that they have some inherent right to uh, eternal life with God. But Christ says, hey, I'm the only way to go through. And guess what? Only those who come through me will be with the Father. Only those who come through me are eternally secure. And this gets even more beautiful when we look at why that is. Chapter, or chapter 10, verse 11, when he's talking of the, the illustration of the good shepherd, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. 
why we are eternally secure, why we are in the hand of being in the hand of Christ means we're in the hand of God is that our number one enemy, the number one enemy of God's sheep, the thing that was on them, the, 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 the biggest threat that they had was their own guilt before a holy and righteous God. Our own sinfulness, our own wickedness that condemned us and that was going to send us into hell for all of eternity. And yet Jesus Christ knows the sheep that are his and he says, hey, I lay down my life for my sheep. As the chapters unfold, if you keep reading through the gospel according to John, you will see that Jesus Christ does just this. He takes a cross and puts it on his back. He climbs up the hill to Calvary and he is crucified and the wrath of God is poured out upon him for his sheep. That is the sin, the, the punishment that Jesus Christ's sheep themselves deserved is poured out upon Jesus Christ. And this is why those who truly embrace the gospel message, those who hear the voice of Jesus Christ and cling to him, that is why these are the ones who etern- are eternally secure. Because the only threat, the only thing that can take me away from my God, the only thing that poses any threat to me whatsoever is condemnation. It's a sin. Someone has to bring a charge against God's children. Satan does this. He stands at the foot of God's throne and he accuses the children of God day in and day out, bringing sin, saying, hey, they need to pay you. If you are righteous, you need to punish them. But God has already punished his son for the sins of his sheep. Therefore, nothing can take us from the hand of God. Those who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, who have heard the true gospel, have embraced the Messiah for who he says he is, have given up the world to follow him, will never be snatched from the hand of God. On the contrary, if we believe anything else and if we sell anything else to the unbelievers, we begin to sell them a bad shepherd. If we give anyone anything less than the message that Jesus Christ brought, a message of repentance and faith in him and faith in his atoning work, we begin to present to them a false way of salvation. We start to dilute it down, and this is what everybody who rejects the message of salvation embraces as a bad shepherd. In chapter 1, verse 10, it says, The thief only comes to kill and destroy. Right? These are bad shepherds. And then in verse 12, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, who sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Every form of false religion out there, every form of diluted gospel is nothing more than this bad shepherd who will leave his children at the foot of the throne of judgment. If we cling to anything else, if anyone is clinging to anything less than the true gospel, they will find themselves before the throne of God. They will feel that they were entitled to something and they followed a God who promised them a kingdom and cannot produce it. And they will find their own sins upon their own head. They will have to pay for their own guilt. Their shepherd will abandon them. But those who embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah on his terms, who repent and believe and have faith in him, will follow a good shepherd who will never abandon his sheep. In closing, we see that, you know, just a a few things to leave you with. Is number one, ask yourselves who the Messiah is that you follow. If we're truly embracing Jesus Christ and all of his teachings and all of his, his, his lessons, if we truly give up our kingdom to follow Jesus Christ, and then next, if we truly love unbelievers, are we faithfully preaching a, a faithful gospel to them? Are we living out the gospel that we claim to believe in front of them? And are we faithfully preaching a message of salvation to those that we love? And lastly, if you find yourself here and you're saying, hey, I don't follow this God. I follow something else, or I do kind of contextualize Jesus, or I do soften up the gospel message, or I, I do want a Messiah that gives me the things that I want. Know that you are in a position 
that you are for, you are following a bad shepherd and all that is necessary. I know from the passage it says that uh, we can't control who is a sheep, but you can identify yourself as a sheep. You can prove that you belong to God by repenting and believing in the gospel message. This lesson is not in, in conflict with the fact that God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The only thing necessary for you to inherit eternal life, for you to be placed into the hands of God and never let go of Him, to be eternally secure, is that you repent of your sins. You give up the world and place your faith in Jesus Christ. I'll leave you with that. If you have any other questions about the gospel, don't hesitate to come and talk to myself, to Jeremy, or to any of our members here uh, about the gospel message, about how you can know who Jesus Christ is. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word, God. And we thank you, uh, God, for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent a Messiah, Lord, who was not here to preach a false message of hope, God, but that the Messiah came to redeem us, Lord, that he came to save us from our sins, Lord, to remove the condemnation that was upon us, God, to bear the wrath that we deserve, God, and provide a way that we may actually be made right with you. God, we are no different from the time of our birth. We were no different than the Jews who rejected the message of salvation, we are no different than anyone else who uh, wanted our kingdoms here, God. We wanted the things of the world, God. But you and your sovereignty chose to love us and redeem us, God, and call us to yourself. And, Lord, if we thank you, God, that we heard the voice of our Savior, God, and you have given us eternal life. God, we pray for this congregation. We pray for everyone in this room right now, God, that they would actually truly examine their own hearts and ask themselves if they have truly embraced Jesus Christ on his terms if they have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Him, and if anyone here does not know the salvation found in Him, does not know the eternal security found in Jesus Christ, God, that they would realize that there's nothing they can do to earn your love, God, but they simply need to repent of their sins and cling to Jesus Christ. It will be costly, God. Lord, it will cost us everything, God. We see in the passages that follow our lesson today, God, we see uh, that the Jews picked up stones after Christ spoke to them this way and wanted to kill him, and they eventually would persecute him, Lord. We know that if we, too, follow Jesus Christ, persecution will come upon us. We will not receive this kingdom here that we first and uh, uh, wanted, God, but rather we will receive persecution and suffering. It will be a painful walk, God. But, Lord, um, help us count the cost and realize it is so much better, God, to be eternally secure, to reign with you forever and ever, God, than to have all the riches of this world and perish in our sins. God, we thank you for this morning, God. I pray uh, that all that was preached here today, that everything that happens throughout this day within this congregation would continue to glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.